Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At AHN, we see you at your healthiest. Rocking out while you work out. And tuning into soft rock as you rest up from the flu. We see you reliving the good old days with throwbacks. And replaying that shark song for your kids again and again. We see you blasting ballads to get you through. And searching for an AHN doctor as you listen to the next song. Visit AHN.org to get started. This Memorial Day weekend, get ready for fun, fun, fun when Nemecolon welcomes the Beach Boys to the peak stage. Spend the weekend relaxing in the spa, perfecting your swing on the golf course, soaking in one of the four pools or ziplining through the forest, and then cap it all off with the luau-themed event featuring Grammy Award-winning band, the Beach Boys. Overnight and VIP packages are available. Visit Nemecolon.com for more information. Hello, this is Albert Einstein. History myths fly around at the speed of light. Especially with that new internet thing you all seem to have. Thank goodness I have a direct connection to Professor Buzzkill, a fellow deep thinker who busts myths and takes names. I'm totally stoked there's a new episode. I was stuck on this new equation anyway. E equals MC something. Something. Nah. Once again, it's time for Professor Buzzkill, the greatest history podcast in the entire universe. And I'm here with your favorite history professor, Professor Nash. How are you, Professor? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be associated with such superlatives. <laughs> that's us. That's us. You know... We talk a lot about American history on this show. Obviously, our, our audience is mostly American. And the, the, the subject of African Americans in American history keeps coming up again and again and again. And it's almost never a good story. It's always, almost always disheartening, uh, dealing with rights being either taken away or dealing with slavery, things like that. It just it seems as if it never gets any better historically for African Americans. Does it have an up and a down? It does get better, and that's despite what I'm, a lot of the stuff I'm about to say, people should try, it's hard, but should try to keep that in mind. That okay, there, that there is, better. as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, there is an arc of history, uh-huh. and it does tend toward justice, although uh-huh. that, I know he didn't coin that phrase. Yeah, you yeah, have to be careful. <laughs> Sorry, didn't yeah. mean to imply that. Yeah. But I He's mean, credited as saying in, it. I mean, if you look at the condition of, uh, of 
black America in 2018 yeah. and you compare it to any other period, obviously we have made great progress. Okay, all right. Because um, it does, it often seems like it's it's a never-ending tragedy. Right, and as bad as things often seem today, that to me, that's one of the points of historical consciousness is, is that it provides context. Right. And today we're going to provide some context which is far grimmer than <laughs> yeah. anything you would see today. But... People should also just know about this period. But part of the thing is that I think it doesn't get taught as much or doesn't get the coverage it deserves because it is so grim and unpleasant in some ways. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there is, if you look, there is plenty of uplift to be found. Right. Right. There are positive stories, there are inspirational stories, there are people who do good work and get uh, and and help achieve progress, Mm -hmm. and that there are, you know, including white people, by the way. Sure. so, but this 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 is the period of it's called the nadir by historians, right. which is the opposite okay. of zenith. It yeah. means the low point. Yeah. And obviously, you might when you hear that you might think, okay, wait, wait, what about slavery? Yeah. Obviously, slavery is the low point. Yeah. The, this refers yeah. to the low point in African American history post slavery. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And so, post slavery, by post slavery, we we don't really mean. 1865, when the Civil War is over, we mean 1877. That's right. So post-slavery and post-reconstruction. So in other words, if if you are periodizing black history, there's the slavery period, which ends in 1865, and there's Reconstruction, which is the next 12 years until 1877. Uh The period after that, bridging into the 20th century, where you would end it, we could debate about that. I would say maybe roughly 1920. Okay. But because um, in, in some ways it lasts until the civil rights movement. If yeah, you look at sure. some of the realities. Yeah, absolutely. But this period is called the nadir. This is the period when Reconstruction is over, Southern blacks. And by the way, well into the 20th century, we're talking about 80 to 90% of the entire black American population, just for context. 80 to 90? The vast majority of blacks live in the South well into oh, the 20th century. Wow. And by the way, this period is so bad, that's why it's going to change. In other oh, words, and where yeah, that, that right. percentage is yeah. going to drop as African Americans will will leave. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, but basically, what I mean after 1877, this uh, m- these millions of African Americans in the South are left to the tender mercies of Southern whites, the Southern white majority. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be using shorthand like Southern whites. Southern whites are like all people; they're much more diverse than any right. one label. Yeah, sure. You have you have some. Well, they're mostly secret, but secret white Republicans yeah. <laughs> in this period. You have, and of course, Republicans means members of the Republican Party in the 1880s, exactly. 70s, 80s. They're, Correct. Yeah, right. But basically, what happens the the story of the Nadir is, especially not immediately. It takes a while. It's gradual. It's on by definition, it's on the state and local level. But mm-hmm. gradually, especially after 1890, a comprehensive system of race oppression is put in place. Comprehensive. Comprehensive, which is to say, a system of race oppression. Where African Americans kept underfoot, yeah, subservient, exploited, kept in an inferior position, and it is a it's a trap. There, there's uh, as we'll see with a couple of sections, it, there's no way out, and it marks virtually every aspect of your life and of your society as an African American living in the South. Yeah, I see on the outline that you've you've, you've given us here. There's there's everything: economic subservience, disenfranchisement, right. segregation, mm-hmm. popular culture, terror, right. and lynching. It is almost as if you know everything about your life is not only defined by other people but prescribed by other right. people. And if you look back on it, like take you know take a step back and look at the big picture, you could be excused for thinking that this was put in place by a single evil criminal mastermind. Right. 
I mean, yeah, it's see, that's, right. that's not. It was much more organic than that. It was yeah. much more gradual. Yeah, it just in some ways it sort of happened, but it ends up being a complete system of race oppression. It's yeah. not. It's not partial. It doesn't have holes in it. It's it it ensures complete white dominance of the black population. Right. Into the 20th century. This well is, into the 20th, well 20th century. Well into the 20th century. In some ways to the midpoint of the 20th century. Yeah, So right, decades. Right. So let me just go through these. Um, not You could do an entire show on each of these, by the way. Yeah, that's so right. So we yeah. are, just so people know, I'm not at all aiming for comprehensiveness here. This no, is, no, this no. Is the, uh, this is the Sparks Notes version. <laughs> um, so first of all, economic subservience. African-Americans have few, if any, economic opportunities. Most black Southerners after 1877 are sharecroppers. Right. Now let's, is, tell, let's go, let's remind them what that is. Yeah, they're tenant farmers. And what they do is they pay rent in the form of a share of the crop. Right. So, okay. because they, and partly because they have no other resources. Right. The only way they can pay rent is by handing over a portion of the crop, whether it's cotton or rice or what, or tobacco or whatever. Um, it's complicated, but very quickly, a lot of them become trapped in lifelong debt, partly because they often have to borrow money from a local monopoly lender, often in the form of a general store. Oh, right. There's no banking system, really. Sure. Um, And so a lot of them end up, basically, when it comes time to pay their share of the crop, their share of the crop is 100%. Uh, And so then they have no money left over for themselves and have to borrow, and then they just go deeper and deeper into debt. And this is part of the economic exploitation, right? In other words, mm-hmm. the system is set up to make sure these people are are tied down in debt. Now, by the way, it also describes a fair number of white people. Yeah, the South remains economically under development. A lot of poor whites are also tenant farmers and sharecroppers, but they have the advantage of their white skin color. Right. Let's never forget that. Right. You also have this thing which has gotten a lot of attention in recent years called convict leasing. No. And remember, what no. white Southerners are doing is they're trying to come up with a substitute for slavery. They lost. Yeah. They lost four million free laborers, free by the mean, and by that I mean they don't have to pay for them. Right. They don't have to pay them a yeah. wage. When this 13th Amendment is Right, when slavery yeah. is abolished in 1865. So they were trying to come up with a, a substitute. Sharecropping is, in effect, one substitute. Who's going to pick my cotton? And, uh, and I don't right. have to pay them much, if anything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, convict leasing is another aspect of this. Thousands of African-American men are arrested, often on bogus, trumped-up charges, after the war, after the war, after okay. 1877, this oh, becomes. Okay. This becomes oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. I would argue it's the original mass incarceration. Ugh. Thousands of African American men, usually able-bodied young men, are arrested, almost always convicted because they're all white juries before too long, mm-hmm. and uh, often for crimes they didn't even commit, given punitive sentences, multi-year yeah. sentences, sometimes multi-decade sentences. These are like the vagrancy laws and things vagrancy like that. Vagrancy laws, exactly. Yeah. Drunk, drunk disorderly, right? The disorderly conduct, you know, often sort of completely uh, bogus charges. And then they're sentenced, sentenced to prison or jail, and then they are leased out to local landowners yeah. to provide agricultural labor. Convict labor. Convict labor. That that's a substitute for slavery. Yeah, the sure. the, the landowner pays the pre, pays the prison very very little money. Mm. The prisoner gets no money, mm. and often they and they they're kept in you know sort of medieval conditions. Right. Yeah. I read about some place like Parchment Farm in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah. There's a whole book about that. The title of the book is Worse Than Slavery. Yeah. Because if you look at the conditions, yeah, um, not not too far off the it, mark. In fact, isn't the one of the subclauses of the Thirteenth Amendment the uh, slavery is is prohibited except for punishment that's right of a crime that's right yeah which they right. had to put in there sure otherwise but, it wouldn't be but it, yeah. yeah it does provide a loophole and then 
keep in mind, underlying any economic system is an educational system, yeah. which is a disaster for African Americans. Leaving aside the fact that a lot of African American kids, African American kids, can't properly go to school because to support the family they have to be pulled out of school to help with the work sure yeah which is also true of a lot of poor white families but even more so for poor black families if you look at the south there's a factoid as of 1916 african-american schools uh received less than a third of the funding that white southern schools received (sighs) per 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 pupil right And and by the way the white southern figure is way low compared to the rest of the country Let's keep that in mind uh, as well. So these are some, you know, dilapidated one-room schoolhouses yeah. with no heat and using hand-me-down white textbooks that are right. forty years out of date, et cetera, et cetera. So remember, especially in our country, one of the few ways forward economically is to become educated. Right. Right. So let's not forget that. So that is taken away. So there's this there's a system of economic subservience. On top of that, there is especially after 1890, systematic disenfranchisement, which is to say African-Americans who, remember, had been given the vote during Reconstruction right, right. due to the 15th Amendment, through a series of ploys are denied the vote. Now, why do you say after 1890? Uh, by 1890, all these Democrat, big D Democrat governments are firmly back in charge. Oh, and, the, and, okay, and okay. starting. It takes them a while for them to get up and running and then get in a situation where they, for example, can rewrite their state constitutions. Finagling these things in. Okay. Right, and, and passing new laws in order to disenfranchise black people. Keep in mind that the 15th Amendment is worded negatively. And the 15th Amendment is? it gives. It's supposed to give black people the vote, black men, that is. Right. Uh, it's phrased negatively, which is to say the right to vote shall be, shall not be denied on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Right. Which, if you're a lawyer, cries out for the exploitation of loopholes. So uh, what the white South did, the shall not, yeah. They should have said, black people get the vote. Yeah, right. They right. didn't. Yeah. They said, you can't remove the vote from them on this basis. Uh, what are you going to do? Remove yeah. it on some other basis. Yeah. <laughs> and so the white South comes up with a series of laws, three basic laws. One will be the poll tax. Yeah charge people uh, money in order to vote. Well, black people don't have any money. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're wondering, what about poor whites? Well, who's making these laws? Not just any white people, but rich pe- white people. Yeah. So it's right. kind of a twofer. It's class warfare from above. And right. a lot of, uh, and in these laws, a lot of poor whites are also disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Literacy tests. And again, we mean effectively disenfranchised. There's no law that says correct. The vote away. Well, yeah. and that's the thing. It's like if someone yeah. said, "What about the 15th Amendment?" We say, "Well, I'm not denying it based on race. I'm denying yeah, yeah. it based on the Ill- yeah. inability to pay a poll tax, yeah. technically legal under the 15th Amendment." Same with the literacy test, which, by the way, in the early 20th century was packaged as a progressive reform. Right? Who do you want voting? Yeah. You only want people who you know are educated. And to be educated, you have to be able to read. And this might be a spur to education because you might, want, you know, in theory. Now, these were also, um, in practice, were not evenly um, executed. In other words, yeah, white right. people were not given the literacy test, which is good because a lot of whites were illiterate. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if a black person came in to be examined and proved they could read, mm-hmm. then they would have to prove they were a constitutional scholar. And the local oh, 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 investigator oh. or sheriff would start quizzing them on the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, the local sheriff didn't know either, but he's got it in front of him. <laughs> there was the there was no standard test. Right, so, so I mean, seriously, so like, so what's Article Two, Section Three of the Constitution? If you couldn't answer that question, you couldn't vote. Yeah. Okay. So there's that, and then I my my favorite exactly. I can't either. My favorite is so it's like today, like how many citizens could pass a citizenship test? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and then there's my favorite, the grandfather clause. Some states passed laws that said you can vote if your grandfather could vote. 
Now, how come this wasn't abolished by the Fifteenth Amendment? Uh, I guess it's not. It's not in. It's, it's not in one it's, of those. You're reasons. not discriminating based on race, wow. color, wow. Or previous condition of servitude. Wow. You're base. You're you're being disenfranchised based on your grandfather's status. Technically legal. Yeah. No, it's perfectly transparent. And by the way, and this is the most this is the most uh, finely tuned instrument. This won't catch any white people up in it. Unlike oh, the first two, their grandfathers could vote. Their grandfathers could vote because they were white, right? So these are laws that are actually passed by state legislatures. Absolutely, okay. and put on the books. They're for this, this is not informal discrimination. This yeah, is formal. Right, this right. is this gotcha. is in black and white. It's on paper, and so obviously the status of almost not all but almost all african americans in the south is your grandfather was a slave your father your grandfather was property of course you couldn't vote therefore you can't and once again spun as a progressive reform right we want people voting who have a stake in the community and who have been here a while and blah 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 and yet it's the exact opposite progressive so by the time you get to the early 20th century um the number of african americans who are registered to vote in mm. a place like Mississippi, you could probably mm. fit in your house. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, there were a few people who could register, but they're token, literally token. Right. And then on top of that, once, you, once you've denied black people to vote and so they can't fight back in politics, you can then set about segregating society. And this is where the South becomes Jim Crowed. Yes. Okay. Jim, right from the minstrel show, this, this is the label put on the South Jim Crow. In other words, rigid, formal segregation of all aspects of public life. Right, people have seen photos of the two drinking fountains. Yes, yes. The this the two parts of the bus, right? The the segregated movie theater, the restaurant, and everything. And I mean everything in public life is segregated. Yeah, and we're entire talking, generations what? of African Americans didn't know how to swim because they were banned from public swimming pools. Yeah. Yep. The blood supply was segregated. Now that's an interesting thing. The, well, that's a, a shocking thing to most modern people. That that blood, which is the only color of blood is red is that, that it's literally segregated. Yep. You're not type a yes. type B You're type right. a white type B white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would, type and a, you, you paid a lot of attention to keeping that blood, blood supply. Segregated. <sighs> and every, every phase of your life from the maternity ward in the hospital, and by the way, if you look at the story, the biography of someone like Bessie Smith, the famous yeah. jazz singer, singer yeah. who was in a bad car accident and bled out because she wouldn't be admitted to the local white hospital. Yeah. Allegedly. Um, Graveyards are segregated. Yeah, um, our military segregated until after World War II. Let's not yeah. forget, um, we fought against the Nazis on behalf of a of segregated society, including in the military. Um, by the way, where white Southerners usually put in charge of black units because they knew how to quote unquote handle their Negroes. You can wow. imagine the morale or the effectiveness oh, of that yeah. unit, and then it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, this unit doesn't fight very hard. Well, why do you think that? Why is? should they? Yeah, they're not very well led. They're not inspired, etc. So, and of course, let's not forget that the legal system is also rigidly segregated, which should ultimately be the most fair, and it isn't? Yes, right. You have all white juries. Black people cannot serve on juries. Black people accused of crime are almost always convicted. Whites committing crimes against blacks yeah. are almost never charged. Yeah, much less convicted, yeah. right? So basically, yeah. you have if you if you're a white criminal and want to victimize black people, you go right ahead. And just to show the disdain of the whites, um, black on black crime mm-hmm. is typically not taken very seriously or prosecuted by the white legal system oh. because because we quote unquote we white people just don't care. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. Yeah, let so, them hurt each other. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. So it's, right. Why would we waste any resources policing the black community? Yeah, oh. and let's not forget that this is all signed off on by the U.S. Supreme Court itself in 1896 with 
one of its most infamous decisions ever, Plessy v. Ferguson, right, in which, quote-unquote, separate but equal is enshrined in U.S. law, even though everyone knew, except the one dissenting justice, apparently, because it was an 8-1 decision, mm-hmm. that separate was never equal. And the whole right. purpose of separate was to make it unequal. But this was this was the law of the land, right? All other legal efforts were basically discouraged by this decision for the next almost 60 years, yeah. until 1954. All of this is reinforced by popular culture, yep. by things like the lost cause, right? That the Confederate cause was pure and that... Um, you know, slavery wasn't so bad and black people deserve to be subordinate, et cetera, et cetera. Which, 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 which keeps coming up in American history. That just, it's, it's a, it's a myth that will not it die. It is unavoidable, unfortunately. But if you look at American popular culture, and by that I mean things like entertainment, yeah. advertising, the media, it's so relentlessly racist, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you like the, the, the black lawn jockey, yeah, the absolutely. mammy figure, Stepping and Jemima, step and fetch it, Uncle Ben, all of these tropes, they're not harmless. Quite the contrary. No, no, they no, all no, reinforce no. the system of racism. It's a way of teaching young people, young white people, to hate black people. Mm-hmm. You have a whole series for years, greeting cards, where um, humor is derived from depicting young black children being consumed by alligators. You know, like where the alligator has his mouth open and the tongue has says the word well, like it's a welcome mat and the little black kid is about to step in. That's hilarious for white people. (sighs) Uh, So-called coon songs at a time when when sheet music and making your own music was so popular. Yeah. Um, A whole, uh, forget about popular culture, uh, or at least that was parts of it. There's also this whole uh, series of facets to the racial racist etiquette. Mm-hmm. That you're supposed to follow, yeah, especially in the South, right? It's so holdover from the slave days. This a series, of, for example, you never look a, a white person in the eye if you're a black person. Yeah, you yeah. preface all your remarks with "Yes, sir," "No, sir." Yeah, you never speak until spoken to. Mm-hmm. You yield on the sidewalk to any white person. Mm-hmm. These are all part of a racial code meant to humiliate and degrade on a daily basis, and to establish white superiority in all ways to a petty level. Yeah. And violation of this etiquette could have gross consequences for you. Oh, sure. Which leads me to my last bit here. All of the aforementioned is uh, reinforced and backed up by a system of terror. Yeah. Primarily in the form of lynching, but also lesser yeah. forms of violence. This is the heyday of American lynching. Um, uh, we could do a whole show on this. Yeah. It's apart from slavery itself and treatment of Native Americans, easily the most disgraceful episode in American history. Yeah, absolutely. Where extra legal murder, sometimes by mob, sometimes by small group, sometimes with the knowledge, often with the knowledge or participation of law enforcement itself. Yeah. We have good stats, at least, well, we have good stats about the lynchings we know about. Yeah. We're talking about almost 5,000 lynchings between 1882 and 1968. Oh. Vast majority of them grouped in the last decade of the 19th in the first two decades of the 20th centuries. Okay, so we're talking about 1880s to 1920s. That's right. So the, the pace is not uniform. Uh, it starts to fade as a practice by the time you get to the 1920s. Yeah. And then by the time you get to the 1950s, it's rare. You just still see it, but it's rare. Yeah. In the 1890s and early 1900s, it's incredibly common. Uh. In the 1890s, every two or three days, there's a lynching somewhere. Mm. More in some places than others. Yeah. Good studies on this. There, it's more common where you have a big, big black population. 
So Mississippi and it, yes, Mississippi and South Carolina, places like that. Yeah. In the deep South. It's more common in, in eras of economic distress. Ah, okay. where in other words, white people sort of take out their economic frustrations on black people. Three quarters of the victims are black. Not so, all of them, yeah, but three but that's quarters. A huge percentage. A huge majority. There are white people who are lynched. There's there are nine Italian immigrants who were lynched in New Orleans in 1891 oh, in, right, one, in right. one incident. Yeah. In the West, often it was like you know cattle rustlers or whatever. Yeah. These are the lynchings we know about. A lot of them clearly were undocumented. Uh huh. Um. 85% of them were in the South. That, again, is a vast majority. And often these were announced in advance. <sighs> Sometimes they were large events that were had the had the atmosphere of a county fair. And hence why the, the cooperation of law enforcement, as you mentioned a second ago. Right. Um, there's a whole... Uh, these days, there's a lot of study just of lynch photography. Yes, yes. There are entire yeah, books on yeah, the subject. Yeah. Sometimes picture, picture postcards were made. Yeah. Strange Fruit, the song. Right. From, uh, about that. Um, there, there was at least one urban lynching I read about. A, a crowd of 10,000 people assembled. Wow. 10,000. 10,000 people. Um, often they would build a scaffold. Uh, often the victims were tortured to death, not just killed. Oh. Yeah, I wouldn't want to get into the details. It's, it's as grim as you can imagine. The forms of humiliation and brutality and dismemberment and, mm. you know, using blow torches and lynching an entire family, the kids first in front of the parents. I mean, if you can imagine a barbarous way of killing somebody, sure. the lynch mob came up with it. And by the way, this should not be understood as vigilantism. This is not quote unquote rough justice. No. This is terror. Yeah. This is, and we even have quotes from the leaders of lynch mobs where they basically say we need to set an example yeah. so that other African Americans don't quote unquote step out of line. Preemptive this justice. Is, this, is, yeah. this is knowing terror. In other words, not just violence, it's terror, right? You're yeah. trying to oh, intimidate yeah. an entire population, especially black men. And of course, the whole trope here is that white people think this is necessary to protect young white women mm-hmm. from black rapists. You see this in Birth of a Nation. Yep. You see this throughout the culture. It's based on nothing, but it's a way of justifying this brutal terror, which keeps the rest of the system intact. Because if you agitate, if you talk about politics, if you try to threaten or confront this system Mm -hmm. of race oppression, they will not hesitate to inflict the ultimate punishment on you. Yeah. Right. It it costs your life. And so for decades, black parents raised their kids to act in a certain way. Yeah. To avoid this sort of violence, right? Yeah. How, here's how you interact with white people. Don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. Because, you know, as a human being, you, you expect equality, and then you have to be told how to behave in this system right, of race right, oppression. Right. So, like I said, this is all pretty disgraceful, and it goes on for decades. Well, not the most um, positive note on which to uh, go for a, a sponsorship break, but we do have to do that. And so we'll be back in a moment. Okay, we're back. Professor, this is so bad, as you've talked about. It's the nadir for African-Americans in, in, in the United States. Why, the, if we know all this stuff, why, why are there so many myths about it? Right. Um, and that, once again, I don't know if these rise to the level of myth, but one myth or misconception or is almost, uh, I would say, an act of omission rather than yeah. an act of commission. Well, this qualifies under our, our definition right. of a myth. And, and that is, I, I think this, because it's so depressing and so, in a way, sort of relentless in its negativity, yeah, yeah. I think this often gets dropped either in books or in, by school teachers. 
because it's just really unpleasant. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, you know, apart from things like, like I said, apart from slavery or treatment of the Indians, it's one of the things we would least like to admit about mm-hmm. ourselves and about our past mm-hmm. because there, it seems like there's so little, uh, redeem, so few redeeming features to it. Um, so I, it's my more, more of a case of ignorance. Right. Exactly. Than, I, th- I think a lot active. of people, I think a lot of people, if, if, if I'm assuming that some people would listen to what I just laid out, they might be surprised about how just awful it is. Yeah. Right. You know, they might have a general sense that it's bad and the white and the black people weren't treated equally, but I think they might be surprised by just how comprehensive and relentless and thoroughgoing it is yeah. just from top to bottom right to Com- left complete and inescapable yeah and complete that would then that's just my sense i could be wrong and i'm sure there's some people who who know these parts of that uh the more important myth and you see this in other cases you see this in slavery and you see mm-hmm. this during the civil war mm-hmm. when for example you still see people who talk about emancipation as being this unilateral act by white people toward black people. Right. You know, it was like the, the great emancipator Abraham Lincoln waved his magic wand and ended and slavery. Then, right, 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 right. And in all of these cases, you should ne- never view African-Americans as merely passive victims to their fate, waiting yeah. to be saved. Yeah. It's really important. Uh, African-Americans, like all people in history, have agency, as we say. Yeah. In history biz, They're they have agency. They do things to help. They, they, yeah. they do things to help themselves. They make the best of a bad situation. They did what they could. And under the worst apart from slavery, the worst possible circumstances. Yes, yeah, before the break you mentioned uh, kids are brought up to, to do behave in right. certain ways to avoid and, these terrible things. Yeah, and let's keep in mind that even in the economic sphere, because there were people like Booker T. Washington arguing for economic self-help, right? Enrich yeah, yourself, right? Yeah. create a business. There were cases where, this is what got I.D.B. Wells, um, the great anti-lynching crusader started, mm-hmm. is that three people she knew, three black people she knew who ran a business were lynched because they were economic competition. Yeah, so at the same time, you've got white people saying, well, you know, you should work on your own thing and, you know, work hard and get ahead. You're Doing not allowed to American get ahead dream. even. Yeah. Right. So even that avenue is closed off, right? Because we're all about bootstraps, right? We're all about working hard and yeah. doing better than your parents did. African-Americans, in a lot of cases, can't even do that. Right. There were some success stories. There was, what was it? Let's, let's say they were certainly prevented from doing that because of this all-encompassing system. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and there was certainly, it was an enormous obstacle yeah. to yeah. economic self-improvement. No question. Even though there were some people who did manage it, it was in spite of the system, not because of the system. Yeah, right, exactly. I'll, I'll put yeah. it that way. They did, but African-Americans did what they could. They continued to build their communities. Mm-hmm. And which they have no choice but to do because of segregation. Absolutely. Right? And so you do have a small black middle and professional class that develops. Yeah. Right? Black yeah. Do- doctors and black lawyers and, and black dentists. And by the way, just parenthetically, when you get to the civil rights movement, a few of these African Americans are going to be among the only African American opponents of the civil rights movement. Oh, because they because they actually benefited from Jim Crow. This doesn't get a lot of attention, uh, maybe for obvious reasons, but you do like in a place like Birmingham, you yeah. do have a few middle class blacks who sort of wait back on the sidelines and don't take part in the movement. That's part because they realize that if you do away with Jim Crow, they'll have to compete against all the white doctors and white dentists, uh, and they don't exactly relish the prospect. Yikes! Yeah, so there are always complications here. Anyway, but they build their communities and build their churches. Yeah, the churches are really big um, thing. You cannot, you cannot exaggerate their importance mm-hmm. because these churches are basically the only major social institutions that African Americans are allowed to have. Right. Yeah. You're not allowed to. Uh, you're not allowed to t- take part in politics. In other mm-hmm. words, not only can you not vote, you're not allowed to agitate. 
Right. You'll be right, stomped right, on. Right. The only organizations of any kind you're really allowed are churches. Yeah. And it's not a coincidence that they will be the basis of the modern, quote unquote, modern civil rights movement. Because right. that's where African Americans have been basically building institutions for decades. And that's where they can congregate and that's where they can in, in largest, nar- largest numbers. That's right. And you also have a, an entire generation of civil rights leaders that emerge from this period. Right, right. It's they're not at all on on the same page. We could do a whole show on this oh, vigorous yeah, debate among yeah. black civil rights. It's, it's broadly similar to disputes you see later between people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you have Booker T. Washington on the one hand. You have W. E. B. Du Bois on the other hand. You have vigorous debate, sometimes a uh, bitter debate among uh, the leaders about what approach do you take. Right. But you also have the founding of modern civil rights organizations like the NAACP. Yeah, National Organ- National uh, Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Right, founded in 1909. By the way, in largely in response to a major race riot in the North, oh, okay. Springfield, Illinois, 1908 was a race riot. And by the way, race riot is kind of a euphemism in this period. Uh-huh. A race riot is when armed whites invade a black area and start beating and killing people. Oh, okay, they're not they're not as even as you might imagine. But the NAACP was founded with a largely white leadership at first, by the way. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Du Bois was one of the few, if not the only, black person who was among the original leadership. Hmm. That's going to change later on. But this is crucial long term because the NAACP is going to lead the legal struggle against Jim Crow. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a direct line from this event and the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision in hmm. which Jim Crow in schools is overturned, 1954. Yeah. Uh, that that struggle takes decades, and that's what the NAACP focuses on. They also have a very um, prominent anti-lynching campaign. Yes, I. D. B. Wells. I. D. I. D. B. Wells. Um, that they wage for decades. Right. Uh, anti-lynching bills are introduced to Congress. They always die in the Senate because of Southern filibusters. Yeah. But they are brought because of outside pressure by yeah. people in the African American community working to. Um, improve their own situation. Mm. And finally, you also have in this period uh, increasing incidences where African Americans fight back against violence and race riots. Now, by fight back, you mean fight back physically? Physically. Military? Physically military? fight back. Yeah, okay. Uh, and you see this, for example, in the race race riot of 1906 in Atlanta, uh-huh. where the white mob is actually stopped at the edge of the black community because they're met with gunfire. Wow. And or if you look uh, fast forward to the so-called Red Summer of 1919, where you have a whole bunch of race riots, the worst of them in Chicago, where like a hundred people are killed. Oh my goodness! Um, these are awful events um, because of the racial tensions uh, that goes along with the black migration. But um, there are a fair number of white people killed in these right. race riots, right. which you m- wouldn't necessarily have seen as much earlier. So there are ways within within this horrible context, there are yeah. ways in which African Americans are trying to find their way, trying to take charge of their lives, trying to push back a little bit, trying to improve themselves. Often not with, I mean, you know, look at the civil rights leaders, often they're not very successful. Right, right. But that's just a measure of the odds are up against. It's it not, has it's to not go for, on for another yeah, four decades. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's not for lack of effort. Yeah. That struggle is a, has to be a long, protracted struggle and has to start somewhere. And it starts here under the most discouraging circumstances. Hmm. Okay, well, let's take a little break uh, for station identification and we'll get back and we'll talk about perhaps the most par- prominent popular response to this comprehensive situation. Hello, this is Antonia Buzzkill. Please support my daddy by going to professorbuzzkill.com and clicking on the Patreon button. 
while you're there, subscribe to his email list and shop the Buzzkill Bookshelf. Follow him on Facebook, on Twitter at BuzzkillProf and on Instagram at Professor Buzzkill. Professor Buzzkill is part of Entertainment One's podcast network and is available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and all major podcast apps. Please leave a review while you're there. Thanks for listening. Okay, Professor, you've talked about how comprehensive this African-American nadir is well into the 20th century. And there is a very, well, the, the most effective way is something we want to wrap up with here. And what is that? Well, it turns out, especially when you get to the time of World War I, which breaks, yeah. out, which breaks out in Europe in 1914, a, a, a solution, not, not for all and not for the majority, but yeah. for a significant minority of blacks in the South, a solution uh, offers itself in the form of the Great Migration. Okay. The Great Migration, okay. Which is to say African Americans leaving the South permanently for the Northeast, for the Midwest, and to a lesser extent to the Far West. Okay. In other this, words, going to all parts of the country that aren't the South. <laughs> does this last longer than just World War One? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, depending on how you measure it, it re- demographically in terms of, I mean, because you can look at census data, yeah, demographically sure. it doesn't end until 1970. Oh, 1970, okay. And in more recent years there, I don't know how big it is, but I know that in recent years a fair number of African Americans have actually been Moving back to the south, right? Yes, yes, that's been yeah, right. Noted, so yeah. there, but that's 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 pales in comparison to the larger Great Migration. It's actually one of the biggest demographic shifts in all of American history oh, of okay. any kind. Okay, okay. It starts slowly at first after 1900. It picks up a lot of speed once World War One starts because there are so many jobs being created in the north. Now remember, there are jobs mm-hmm. being created related to the war before we actually join the war. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. demand for American goods by the warring European countries goes to the shoots roof. way up. Yeah. And especially after we joined the war in 1917, where we're drafting, well, four million men into the armed forces, yeah. the, the labor shortage in the North becomes epic. And ah. you, have, you have Northern firms who actually send recruiters to the South, into the Mississippi Delta, saying, huh. you want a job in the North? So I'll, it's two I'll, things. I'll, I'll pay, you a, pay for your ticket. So it was a, it's not just these new industries, but the, the men leaving in 1917. That's right. Which, which is going to cause some of the racial tension after the war ends. Oh, with returning they, soldiers okay. come and find their jobs have been taken by black people. Okay. But uh, migration scholars always talk about push and pull factors. Yeah. Here, we shouldn't be surprised to find the migration take place because you have both. Yeah. In other words, you have these horrible conditions in the South. The push factor. Which are compounded in the short term by things like the boll weevil which oh, decimates right. the yeah. cotton economy. Yeah. So the cotton economy, which has already oppressed black people, it gets even worse around 1915. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, just these horrible conditions yeah. uh, in yeah. the South. People realize they can vote with their feet. They can go to the North. And the North offers certain attractions. There's a lot of hype that goes through the black community. And they start talking about the oh, North as the promised land. Okay. Once again, they use biblical terms. It's the promised land. And stories spread about, you know, how awesome it is in the North. Now, when black people get to the North, they find out it's not entirely awesome. Yeah. You do have race riots in the North, in places yeah. like Springfield, Illinois, which are created because of this migration. Yeah. In other words, you have Northern whites who look down their noses at Southern whites, but quickly discover their own racism when a black person moves in. Ah. And that leads to a lot of racial tension. Springfield, the home of Lincoln, isn't it? Yeah, a little Central. ironic, I think. Yeah. But basically, we're talking about three quarters of a million people who move from south to north in the first two decades of the 20th century. Wow. That is a major migration. That's a huge chunk of the black population overall. Most black southerners remain in the south. 
large numbers leave. Mm-hmm. Often it was a it was a, a kind of chain migration, like the family would send one person north to get established. Sure, yeah, right, right. They make a little bit of money, send money back for, for train tickets, place to go. By the yeah. way, there were cases where white Southerners tried to get in the way of this because they understood that some of their cheap labor force was leaving. Yeah, there were cases where the entire family, which black family, would show up at the train station with their tickets and their luggage, and the local sheriff would come, arrest them, throw them in jail long enough so they miss their train, Ugh. and then release them. This so is, this is the comprehensive. Yeah, so just this sort of harassment and goes on and on and on. But so the North was not the promised land. Just so we're clear, you had yeah. you had de facto yeah. segregation. You had all sorts of discrimination. You had mm-hmm. racist white police forces. You had de facto housing segregation, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And then just plain racism. And racism and race riots. Nevertheless, just look at the economics. Uh-huh. If you got a factory job in the North as a black person, you would be the last hired, first hired, often they're menial jobs, right? Yeah. You're cleaning toilets rather wait, than wait, working on the assembly hired, line. Last hired, first fired, you mean. Sorry. You last. said last hired, <laughs> last, last hired, first hired. <laughs> Oops. Uh, last hired, first fired. Uh, but still, your factory job... Uh, as a black person in Detroit, nineteen seventeen, might be three dollars a day. Yeah, picking cotton in the Mississippi Delta, you were making fifty cents a day. Oh, Lord. so buskers out there, imagine your paycheck being multiplied sixfold overnight. Yeah. You would put up with a lot of nonsense. Yeah, oh, <laughs> to yeah. take that new paycheck, yeah. you might actually be able to raise a family on that amount of money. Yeah, and there's also no rigid Jim Crow in the North. You don't have the rigid segregation. It's much more right. relaxed. Right. Right. You're not constantly over looking over your shoulder as a black person. And let's not forget, in the North, you could vote as a black person. Okay, there, you're saying there weren't these uh, poll taxes and things like that, right? Yeah, no, I mean, there okay. was. There were partly there were so few black people that white people didn't right, even didn't care, vote. right? Yeah. And the fact that it's interesting, the fact you have de facto segregation in the North. For example, all blacks living in Chicago live in one part of Chicago, right? That means at the local level, you start to see political power. In very short oh, order, oh, and you'll be able to elect a black alderman or a black oh, okay. to the city council, whose vote matter, might, might matter, and then you can start getting goodies for your constituent. And the, the vote has to be courted by other people, exactly. by other politicians. And so, lo and behold, 1928, we see an African American return to the U.S. Congress for the first time since 1901. Wow, uh, Oscar De Priest, I think it was his name. And he's not coincidentally. He's from the north. He's not from the south. Right during uh, Reconstruction, yeah. you had blacks yeah, in sure, politics sure. from yeah, the sure. south. Last one is driven out in 1901. Mm. Um, George White, I think his name was, a uh, big critic of lynching. So after more than a quarter century, we have blacks uh, back back in Congress. Only a few at first. It is really hard. There's some great books about the Great Migration out there, by the way. Uh-huh. Uh, a recent one is called "The Warmth of Other Suns." by a journalist, yeah. uh, last name Wilkerson, I believe. Fabulous book. Um, the Great Migration changes America permanently in yeah. many, many ways. Right, yeah. It nationalizes the black population the, yeah. way, uh, the way it had never been before. Mm-hmm. Accelerated by basically everything good and bad. And by that I mean the boom of the 20s accelerates it. The Great yeah. Depression accelerates it as black people leave for the sure. cities like yeah. everybody else looking yeah. for jobs. World War II accelerates it. A lot of black people move to the cities for the good factory jobs, oh, right. yeah, including yeah. out west. Right? Mm-hmm. Places like Oakland, California get a big, big black population because of World War II. Really only stops in 1970. This is one of the most encouraging signs to me. This is like this is this is agency. This is rank and file. This is this is common black folk that you and I have never heard about and will never hear about taking matters into their own hands, voting with their feet, 
doing going, what is possible to find a better life for themselves right. in this unfortunate situation. Going going north or sometimes going west. Going north, right. Where it's not perfect, but it's so much better, they don't look back. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that this, and this is a, this is in terms of demographic history, yeah. this is one of the biggest things in all of American history, wow. white, black, or otherwise, changes America permanently uh-huh. in lots of ways, but it, doesn't solve every problem and in a lot of ways the struggle continues right we still haven't achieved racial equality no no we're not nearly where we were during the african-american nadir that's the good news yeah i mean yeah. we really have seen night and day progress mm-hmm. but if you look at any measure if you look at the economic stats if you look at law enforcement if you look at the legal system if you look at opportunity uh et cetera, et cetera, the rates of incarceration to pick your measure we are not nearly there yet Right, but we've made a lot of progress, no question. Well, Professor, it's always good to have you on the show. You always get wonderful reviews from our listeners, and we hope to have you back soon to talk about many, many more things that need talking about. We'll like be this happy one. to. We'll be happy to. Thank you, Buzzkillers, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.